Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they're eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, a podcast where we focus on how esports can create jobs really anywhere in the world. In season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we talked about money, how to get fu- uh, funding for your esports enterprise. Now, in season three, we're going to be talking about building a business, esports 101. Today, I'm really honored to, to have on as our guest, Andre. Andre, uh, He's going to pr- pronounce his name because I'm going to mess, mess it up. Andre Mayera from um, from Brazil. So, Andre, welcome. It tells your real name. Okay, hi Tom. It, you almost got it. It's like in plain Portuguese we say Andre Moreira, but I understand that there are a few syllables there that are hard to pronounce depending on the the place you're in. So, thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here today uh, and to speak about two topics that are most dear to me. That's law and esports. And I would, I would also like to take the opportunity to congratulate you, Tom and Reggie, for the, the podcast. Uh, every initiative towards the, the growth and the maturity of the esports industry, it's always welcome. So I'm really glad to be here today. Great. Well, thanks for the kind words. One of the things, in, well, in season three, we're going to be talking about how to build a business. And there's a lot of things that when we're talking to uh, people in our uh, people in our audience are good at playing games, but they're not always thinking about how to build a business. So we're going to cover some topics, and and the legal aspect is 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 really important. It's one of the things that people need to be concerned about, but probably don't think of first thing. The other thing, and we'll keep saying it during the episode: this is not legal advice. <clears throat> Anything that Andre says here is not legal advice. We're not even going down that road. But it's more to give people the understanding that, hey, maybe they should be seeking legal advice in these situations. So, um, so wanted to get wanted to get that clear. And the other thing, I've I've always liked um, the whole aspect of the legal side of entertainment in, in games. When I was working over here at Warner Brothers, everything we did in the marketing group went through legal, which was you know always an adventure. Always you know could be tough to do. But then if there are any problems, it's like hey, yeah, you know, go, go go talk to them. Over there, but it was just one of the things that we learned how to create, put that in the process, because and I think there's a lot of um, um, similarities between entertainment and esports because it's all IP. So today on our conversation, I'll let you talk in a minute. On our conversation here, we're going to talk about about the law, about esports in the law, and about intellectual property. But first, Andre, let's talk about what brought you to esports. Nice. That's. <clears throat> It all started when I was a law student. I always liked gaming and games. And while I was studying in the university, uh, I didn't fit in the traditional legal areas. And I was looking uh, for a place where I could work with law, with legal uh, aspects and gaming. And that actually pushed me to the intellectual property area. It's the the area of law that deals with the protection of creations and inventions. And, well, games uh, are one of the kind of projects that has a a complex combination of several IP uh, assets. We talk about copyright, trademarks, patents, uh, image rights that are somehow related to, to IP. And so uh, when I was looking for uh, a place in the legal area to work with games, I started working uh, with intellectual property, started lo- working with the gaming industry. And that somehow that was on 2007, 2008. And I was already uh, assisting clients in the game industry. And in 2014, 15, more or less, I started noticing the growth of the esports industry. Uh, in Brazil specifically. I, I know that there was already 
uh, a considerable uh, industry abroad, especially US, Europe, China. But in Brazil, we were facing at that moment like an embryonary moment. Uh, the industry was growing, it was starting to get, in, to get big. And I, I went once, uh, I saw like a, a League of Legends tournament being broadcasted in a traditional television channel. I noticed that, well, there's something there. There, there is an industry there. Uh, I, I, must I must take a closer look to understand what's happening here. And then, as you guys know better than me, when you try to understand what's the esports, like a whole new world opens in front of you. And that's what happened. And the good thing for me as a lawyer is that there was like two, three law firms at that moment that did some kind of work in the esports in the e industry. So that's a very small number. So we had like the cliche that people say, a blue ocean for uh, lawyers that specialized in esports. And with my IP background, my background in the gaming industry, and I also had the opportunity during this, these years to work in the sports uh, industry, the traditional sports industry. I was a legal director of one of the biggest soccer team in Brazil, Grêmio, my, my team also. So I had a contact also with the sports uh, industry, with sports law, and I think that all those things together told me that, Andrea, you should take a look at the esports and start working with those guys. So first in the beginning, I studied the, the industry, the market in Brazil, tried to know who was who, all the stakeholders, organizations, tournament organizers, publishers. And then I started uh, participating at events, sending a few cold emails, cold calling, getting to know everyone. And happily, this went, this went very well. And today, uh, we, uh, our firm here, uh, we are a firm that is specialized in tech and creative industries. But myself, I work specifically with games and esports clients. And currently, we assist especially a few uh, organizations, tier one organizations, so in Brazil and Latin America too, INTZ, Isurus. We had a few jobs also with some American and European uh, organizations. And also, we also assist and we also work with people that are somehow related to these to this markets, uh, tournament organizers, a few investors, and a lot of companies that have like solutions, softwares that are somehow applied to the esports. So that's how I ended up in the esports market. And of course, personally, uh, I'm also a huge fan of the competitive scenario of gaming. Uh, which, which games do you play? I like League of Legends. I'm a, I'm a MOBA uh, player, but I also used to like a lot first-person shooting like CSGO and Battlefield, this kind of, of games. Currently, uh, as a father, I have very small time to dedicate myself to gaming. So I'm currently more on mobile games. That's when I have a few times I'm already in my bed with my cell phone or with a tablet in my hand. So I'm actually playing a lot of Wild Rift. That's the League of Legends for a mobile, uh, for the mobile environment. So what's the, because uh, we don't get to talk to many people from uh, Brazil. What's the esports scene like? What's the e ecosystem like in Brazil these days? And wh where do you think it's headed in, in broad terms? Uh, we have, uh, I can say, uh, we have a mature uh, industry here. It's still growing. It's, people usually say that we take like the uh, US or the European uh, industry like two to three to four years back. That's where we are in Brazil, actually. In, in number of uh, professionalism, uh, money that are being is being invested, uh, but we have we have a, like a, a considerable industry for esports. Uh, we have a few organizations that are in the top uh, ten uh, position rankings in in the world. We have like uh, teams that are pretty famous in the CS uh, Counter Strike. Uh, scenario we have teams that are doing well in usually first person shooting that's something 
somehow related to Brazil. <laughs> People are good at the, at the FPS games. But what uh, what I see also in Brazil that is being built in a in a good way, like so it's working also as a benchmark for other countries, in even US, is that some organizations like Loud, they are understanding how an esports uh, business organization should be built, which usually it's not only about the competitive, about tournaments, but also about creating content, creating a lifestyle, and we see these examples happening here in Brazil. So I think that the industry had a, a, a considerable growth in the past two to three years uh, due to economical reasons and everything that's going on in the world today. We see that it's kind of, it stopped a little, a few companies are no longer exist, made a lot of bad decisions, but the ones that keep with their plans, the ones that understood how that are understanding how to build an esports business, they are surviving, and I think that this uh, the future is is positive. I think that Brazil and Brazil has a huge audience also for esports, so that's a, a huge thing, uh, an important thing for the to have like an esports market, uh, a healthy esports market and a growing one. No, this. this it sounds like all kinds of great things going going on down there. Yeah, we have our problems too, of course. <laughs> who who does mean. not? <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, one of the things I wanted to ask about and is how is law different? How is law practiced differently in Brazil? Let's say here in the U.S. or maybe some other parts of the uh, of the world, because one of the things is we have a pretty international audience from all over the world. And maybe the format of law, and not necessarily the exact concepts, but just in general, is there a difference between the the way law is practiced in, let's say, in Brazil than in the U.S.? Yeah. Uh, traditionally, there are two huge uh, legal systems that were adopted by countries in the world. We call it the common law. It's a, a legal system that's usually more based on uh uh, legal de judicial decisions, court decisions that more or less uh, uh, mold how the way how future cases are going to be understood and inter interpreted, and we have it's uh, a system that's adopted by U.S., uh, U.K., Australia, India, um, usually those uh, countries with uh, more British uh, influence. And there's the civil uh, law system or the French traditional tradition system that's adopted by Brazil, where we, uh, in which we rely more on laws, on bills that are uh, created, designed, and approved by our congressmen, and those are the most important sources of our uh, legal uh, system. How is that difference uh, different? Uh, usually in Brazil. Uh, we have, well, there's a bad tendency, I like to call, to create a law for everything because of this uh, legal system that we have. And sometimes, usually, uh, a, 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 a law, it's a project of things that are happening in society, and then people understand what's going on, and then they enact something to try to regulate that. But due to this system, people sometimes are trying to how do they say, predict what's going to happen, and then they create laws that have that are not so effective. Uh, and that's a problem here. In U.S., you have more this case law scenario in which you already had, or usually you had some, some case in which a judge uh, already tried to understand the context, created a decision, uh, published a decision, and that is uh, that serves as a reference for future cases. I think that's better uh, in uh, in some point of view. But there are also some things that are pretty different. For instance, in U.S., you have like a jury that will decide uh, a lot of things, including civil litigation. So sometimes a, dis a dispute between a player and an organization will have a jury there to to take a decision. While in Brazil, we don't have. You only have jury for uh, capital penalties in criminal law. So people who killed someone, homicide situations. Uh, otherwise, we have a judge 
and sometimes a technical expert that is uh, used in that case to help the judge to find a, a, a decision. So one of the things that that would really complicate is you'd want to find a judge that understood esports, understood <laughs> yeah. gaming, and if you, if you, which which is probably a lot harder to do than uh, especially one of the things that comes to mind when when you're describing the uh, the different um, systems is that if it's if it's the French system, the system in Brazil, it's more uh, impacted by laws that are on the books. It's like wow, that really can sometimes would put it at a disadvantage at a brand new area like esports that has no no track record. So the people making the laws or the people asking for the laws to get made, it's like it would be it could be could be really tough. Yeah. Uh you can see it as a uh, disadvantage, but sometimes I see it also as an advantage. Because uh, if you have a bad law, it's worse than to have no law at all. Uh uh, if and that's as I said, that's a bad tendency here. Uh, congressmen are trying to create laws to to regulate everything, and sometimes they do that uh, without considering the whole social context that exists, or the whole uh, or the 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 necessities and the the things that that market that specific market is suffering. And sometimes the congressman is totally. Uh, I would say isolated from the actual thing, and they create a lot to try to regulate that stuff. And that, Tom, uh, is happening today with the esports in Brazil. And there are a few uh, proposed bills that are trying to regulate the esports industry in a very poor way, in, in my point of view, obviously. Yeah, I think here in the US, I don't think there's a, a lot of that I know of legislation aimed at esports. It's pretty much you know, um, there's there's more interest, more legal concern about uh, companies combining. You know, you know, Activision, you know, buys something. You know, or Microsoft buys something. It's like okay, then there's a lot of there's more uh, where we where we see it more um, litigation is in in um, which is another topic, but crypto, cryptocurrency. It's like that's that's where. Uh, you see Congress you know, trying to, to wade in because they, they want to do the right thing, but it's like it's just a, a, some really tough concepts for for everyone out there. I, what I wanted to talk about in a little bit, in a little more detail, is if you're, I want to talk about a team owner, a tournament organizer, and a streamer. And let's say if you're a team owner, what are the kinds of legal questions that are going to come up, and what are the kinds of questions should they be asking um, someone that they're getting legal advice from? If you're yeah. the team owner, well, first, first of all, probably you are a team owner with other owners. It's usually you have a partner for that uh, endeavor, for that uh, project that you are creating. So the most important thing at the beginning is to have a clear relationship with that partner from from yours, to establish like a partnership agreement, establishing rules to to better regulate your. Uh, what's going to happen, or and what should uh, those partners uh, put in the in the business? So, ah, uh, someone is going to take care about the marketing area. Someone is going to take part about the 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 management. There is a commercial guy, but you should put that on paper. You should create like a, a, a an agreement to regulate the situation to clearly establish what's the role what's the role of each one in that business and especially what happens if someone decides to leave what will happen with the uh, are, you, are you going to have to buy his shares uh, do you have like a minimum period of time to do that because it's pretty common in this scenario and a lot of others to have like people who uh, think that their their business is going to grow rapidly and it doesn't and then someone give up and they want to leave the deal, leave the business, leave the, the company. But if you don't have a paper, a document saying what's going to happen, what you usually have to have to, at least in Brazil, what's going to happen is that the remaining partner or he will have to buy the share from the one who's leaving and who's abandoning him. Or you have to carry a partner that doesn't work in the deal, but when profits arrive, you have to to share that part with the guy that is no longer working with you. 
So that's the first, the most important thing, to have a clear relation, a relationship with your partners and to put that on a document. And then you go to the other part. So you have, okay, you have a good relation, established relation, forma, formalized with your partner. Then you go to the other people that uh, contribute to your project. So you have team players, streamers, or, or even some service providers. It's important also to have a, a, an agreement with them, establishing rules, how they should work. And especially because in a esports uh, company project, usually, or most probably, you have like a part of your business that's related to content producing or something like that. And so, if someone creates something, there's an intellectual property over those assets. And what happens if you don't have an agreement, say that those assets belong to the company? At least in Brazil, uh, in our legal system, um, it's understood that if you don't have a document expressly uh, assigning the IP uh, rights of something, that is kept by the author, by the creator. And that can be a huge problem if you don't have like an agreement saying that with your teammates or with your service providers. Besides other things like uh, how they should work, what they should deliver, so that uh, that group of agreements with your uh, service providers, uh, players, also it's pretty important. And uh, obviously, a part the part of intellectual property. You, of course, you must protect your own intellectual property. There is your trademark, your organization, and. We have seen a lot of issues, a lot of litigations related to uh, unauthorized use or an organization that used a trademark that was not registered and in the middle of a tournament it had to stop using a trademark and they had already created a lot of materials with that. So you can imagine the, the huge loss that they had uh, in a financial aspect. And also, you must understand, since you are dealing with esports, uh, you are dealing with a totally IP-based industry. So you have also to understand uh, how the IP works because you are dealing with the IP uh, mostly related to the games that uh, are owned by a publisher. And usually, they will. Th there are tournament rules, there are several rules that establish how you can use them and what you can and cannot do like broadcasting, streaming. They even have rules about what kind of sponsors you can have or not. And mostly because of what? You are using a game uh, which IP are owned by someone. So you have a license. You have rules that you must abide to, to keep exploring that, uh, exploiting that uh, creation. And if you don't, there are several rules there that say, talk about suspension, uh, about bans, about uh, fees, and it's also something that's pretty common to see in this industry. Someone that disrespects the IP of the publisher, and then you get your uh, 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 probably a, a citation uh, in the next day because you are violating yeah. and infringing someone's IP. No, no, but there are a lot of other that, things that, is, that we should take care of, but those three, I think, are the most important. Right. Because no, one of the things, as, as you bring up, which I think is super important to emphasize, is that is that you are playing with someone else's IP. There's a, it's like if, if you're out there playing football or soccer or cricket or whatever you're playing in the world, no one owns cricket. No one yeah. owns soccer, uh, football, what, whatever. It's like... Um, but but with here, I mean, you're, that's one of the reasons, and it's maybe a whole different discussion. But with the Olympics coming in, you know, if the Olympics is going to have um, uh, uh, esports events, which they're 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 working into, it's like okay, what IP do they use? Because they don't. It's it's not you know. So it it, it sets esports apart, uh, which which is a really good way. Can you talk a little bit? Let's say if you're a tournament organizer, if you're going to hey, let's put on a tournament. Are there the same kinds of things that, and again, this is not legal advice. This is to make you think of what you should be asking your attorney for. Yeah. So what about sure. tournament organizers? 
first thing you should understand if you can organize a tournament with someone not someone's game or not and uh, we see uh, in this industry there are different kinds of uh, kinds of approach in relation to license to organize tournaments in one side we have like valve uh, with the game that owns the IP of Counter-Strike, uh, Dota 2. They have an open license for tournament organizers. They, they, what they say, more or less, is something like that. You want to organize a tournament with my game? Feel free to do that. There are a few rules that you should uh, pay attention only. I want to have uh, free access to your content so I can use to promote my games. You cannot... Uh, in like create rules that uh, generate some kind of exclusivity, like an organization can only play my tournaments and can no, not play other tournaments. They, they don't accept that. But they say that if you want to do a tournament, feel free to do that. They have like an open license with a few ground rules that should be respected. And you see in the world, like several tournament organizers from different uh, companies, ESL, and others that they create whole tournaments using uh, Counter-Strike or Dota 2 uh, because of that uh, approach that Valve has in relation to, to their game. On the other side, on the opposite side, you have uh, publishers like Riot Games, for instance, that they say, ah, you want to organize a tournament with my game? Okay, you can do that. But you cannot organize tournaments that give more than, I don't recall now, but I think it's $5,000 of prizes. So, of course, uh, an amateur, total amateur tournament you can do. But if you are taking that to a professional step, a professional ground, they say, no, so if you want to do that, then you, you need to talk to me and I will see if I'll let you do uh, this kind of stuff. So first thing, uh, and another uh, interesting example, for, for instance, EA Sports, that they own the FIFA uh, soccer game. Uh, they have also like uh, an approach similar to Riot Games, but they add more things to that. Why? Because the FIFA, the, the football world, uh, football organization, they have their official sponsors, for instance. So uh, there's the, the, situ the, the example of EA Sports that they have like this closed approach like Riot Games, but they have another layer of uh, restrictions because since they, they used to make a game for FIFA, for the uh, Federal International Football Association, there are, FIFA had their own official sponsors for their tournaments. So besides all those rules, there are also rules that you could not include in your EA uh, tournament sponsors that were competitors from those that FIFA, for, for uh, competitors of uh, FIFA official sponsors. So there's a lot of set of rules regarding the tournament organization that you should take a look. The, usually those publishers, they have a specific uh, term uh, in their website or in, in the game that you can check it out to see what you can or cannot do. And if you have doubts, and of course, if you are planning to do like a big thing with your, with your tournament, you should talk to them and try to see if you can get a license or negotiate something. Because if you don't do that, there's a chance there that you can invest in your tournament, hire people, and when the tournament is going to happen, you receive like a cease and disease letter from the publisher saying that you cannot do that. And if you do that, you are going to, to face their lawyers. Yeah. One of the things that, um, one of the things I hear you saying is that the, the IP owners, the publishers, they're interested in having people play their games and create tournaments. They just want to make sure that there's certain parameters that they feel important are, are being are being met. We uh, we were looking at we were uh, talking to WB Games over here about doing some um, Mortal Kombat tournaments in Sub-Saharan Africa, and I was like, "Yes, we want to talk to that. We want to have them know about us because that way um, you, there's there's a chance they're going to pick it up and promote it." It's like so, especially. Uh, with Mortal Kombat being an older title, it's like they don't have a lot to say, but it's like, hey, what, what about all these things going on in, in, in Ghana, in Nigeria, in Kenya? It's like, that's, a, that's an interesting story. 
And if we could get the Warner Brothers fire hose of social media trained on on our story, I mean, that, that was a huge, huge, um, um, could be hugely valuable. So I think there's also an, um, a lot of times I think people go with the idea that uh, let's just do something and hope we don't get caught. <laughs> and and if you're doing something really small that you can walk away from, could be a good strategy. But uh, but if you're if you're spending money, if you're investing money, it's like you're really risking it. One of the things do um, do the publishers are most of their are most of their rules worldwide or is it based by region? So is it going to look differently in South America than it is maybe in Europe? No, usually they are worldwide. Usually they they put that to it's an open and global uh, uh, politics uh, uh, conditions to to for tournament organizers. Uh, a few of them try to they tropicalize one rule or another, but usually it's a global uh, condition. It's a global term that people should uh, respect or not, depending on your interest. Yes, makes sense. What about other things that um, other legal questions might come up to a, um, a tournament organizer outside of IP is like, you know, as far as the venue, as far as working with sponsors and things like that. It's like, how much should they be concerned about getting legal documentation or contracts in place for all of that? Yeah, that's, uh, as a lawyer, I should say that's pretty important to have your all your legal documents uh, prepared. But, uh, well, considering about venue and about uh, sponsors, they are probably one of the most important part in the finance uh, of a, a tournament. Uh, so you should have pretty clear of them. Uh, you sh must have an agreement. And you must understand also how are payments going to be made, where are they coming from, because that's something that we see a, a huge issue in this uh, industry that's a pretty internationalized industry, is that, okay, I'll receive money, but, oh, this money is coming from U.S., I'm from Brazil. Okay, they will send me 100K. Oh, but then the IRS in the United States say that they should withhold 30% of that money, uh, and then I already received 70K. 70K. So I, I didn't prepare to that loss that I would be aware if I checked with a, a tax lawyer or an accountant what would what how is this payment structure uh, structured. <laughs> so uh, that's an important thing to understand the flow of the money. Okay, and also the deliverables. And uh, if most of these uh, sponsors are people that are putting money in the in a tournament. They don't pay everything in advance. They want to retain a part to make sure that things go well, that they will have all the deliverables that were agreed. And you should take uh, a closer look to that. And also, it, it, it's not enough only to do all the things that were in the agreement. You must report, make a report to, to prove that you did that. Because it's also... As every uh, market, there are people that have bad intentions. So, I have seen cases in which I sponsored, uh, told the tournament organizer they're going to pay uh, that money, and then after the tournament, they charge the the sponsor, and the sponsor simply disappeared. So, no money was paid. The tournament organizer was of uh, debts because of the, he was considering counting with that money that it, he would receive after the tournament. And the sponsor had his mark, his trademarks, his name fully uh, marketed during the event and for free almost. So you uh, should take special care to that payment part of the, of the deal. And in relation to venue, the projects and, and other stuff, uh, you have to take, uh, uh, you have to be to have good agreements with the providers that are going to do that, and also to take a closer look on the liability issue with the consumers, with people who bought that stuff, because it's also common to have like bad quality stuff sold and uh, during an event, and then the people get mad, and who are they going to look for first to try to get their money back or to even file a lawsuit against like a, 
uh, possible damage to the tournament organizer. But he had the only thing he did was to license his trademark for a, a producer or a, an industry that built that that project. So uh, these liability uh, issues should also be pretty. Uh, established in an agreement. So what happens if someone uh, thinks that a project uh, has a defect, uh, who pays for that bill, and who should uh, take care of a possible litigation arising out of things that you sold during the event. And uh, there's something also related to tournament organizers, and it's somehow related to IP. So I sometimes I always get back to that topic. I'm, I, I apologize, but no, 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 because no, that, that's that's one of the things I want to keep. Yeah, I, okay. I keep I, I like hearing about that because I, I think our audience needs to hear that more and more. So feel yeah. free. It's about the broadcasting. So uh, tournament organizers, or they will do their own broadcast, or they will hire someone to do that. But usually the rights to broadcast a, a game belong to the publisher that owns that game. Uh, so besides having a license to produce, to organize a tournament, you also have a license, you need a license to broadcast it and sell sponsor shares in that broadcast. Uh, you need to understand if, for instance, some publishers will have like a, a deal with a specific platform, and then you are broadcasting that game in another platform, a competitor. Uh, this will bring a headache to you because I'm pretty sure that the publisher will complain about that. And that's uh, and that's a, a funny uh, example. There is a funny example, not a funny, but an interesting example, because one of the first uh, legal disputes related to the esports industry is related to the broadcast of tournaments. The, the Korean Esports Association, the CASPA, uh, in the beginning of the year 2000, organized several tournaments for the StarCraft, the Blizzard game, in Korea. And when it was a small event, nobody cared about it. They had no license for anything. But what happened? In, in Korea, StarCraft is a huge uh, audience there. And CASPA, uh, the, the, the this Korean Esports Association, did a really good job in promoting that, that ecosystem, that uh, uh, specific niche for uh, competitive StarCraft uh, tournaments. And they managed to sold the broadcast rights to a television uh, channel. And that's when Blizzard reached for the Korean Association and told them, well, you have no authorization at all to do tournaments and even especially to sell broadcast rights based on my game. And then a lawsuit was filed in the U.S. to discuss that. And they reached an agreement there in which they could like do end the last tournament, but they should include a lot of Blizzard's advertises during that broadcast. But after that, they, the, the, the agreement was ended and they should renegotiate it. So it's one of the first uh, lawsuits related to esports uh, that uh, talked, that discussed this question about the broadcasting rights that, uh, in that case, is understood that belong to the publisher that did that, that, that owns the game. Because yeah, one of the things to always keep in mind is that the publisher wants to do that. I mean, they, they want the publicity, but but it, they also need to have have some uh, control on things. Sure, but other you, things you, want it. yeah, no, I would say I just compliment uh, that saying uh, in an initial strategy for advertising the game. I'm pretty sure uh, publishers <laughs> want to see it played everywhere and and trans broadcasted everywhere. But since the esports uh, became an industry of its own. We take like the, the franchise system created by Riot Games over the League of Legends. So they created a franchise system. They charged organizations to join that. So they have a, a project of its own. That's an esports project. And that's where the broadcasting rights are a valuable asset in that. So in that specific case, 
perhaps or maybe, I don't know, never talked to, to Riot Games about that. But in that specific case, their interest might not be to have everyone broadcasting that tournament because they are relying on, uh, on deals over those broadcast rights that become money for the franchise system and for the organizations. No, that makes sense. That, 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 that makes sense too. Yeah, the whole franchise model. And one of the things, I mean, that could be a whole other podcast, but just the, the, the similarities between traditional sport and eSport. Because I think certainly from a structural viewpoint, and when you're talking about franchises, that's something that, um, I mean, that's something in the U.S. I think that they kind of pulled from, um, you know, from the NFL or from any of the, the other major league uh, sports out there. It's like the franchise model has been so successful there, coupled with uh, broadcast rights as the main uh, money, money driver, yeah. uh, the main source of funding. For, and I think a lot of people in esports were looking over there saying, oh, look, look how it's done over there. Look how successful. Is that something that we can do in esports? Yes or no? And I, I think they've had you know, different, different levels of success there. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Uh, just talk about uh, uh, particularity here. I'm a huge fan of franchise systems. We are not pretty uh, used to that in Brazil. We have here, in the, uh, talking about traditional sports now, okay? We usually here we have like uh, federations and open champ open tournaments we 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 never had like a real uh well established uh, experience with a franchise system here for soccer or basketball or, or any other traditional sports as we see it in US and uh, as a lawyer i like it more because there is a whole complexity on how to build those kind of systems. So you have like a huge organization and you put organizations to be partners and you establish a lot of rules about how you pay people uh, caps for salaries, uh, participation on, on profits. And so I think that's uh, really, I really like that part in a legal perspective to study that and to try to apply that. But and, bottom line is, lawyers like rules. They, <laughs> they like black and white. I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm just saying it solves a lot of problems. I'm not going to to contest that. I, I agree. <laughs> no, no. Uh, so, um, so, a couple of other things I wanted to talk about, though, really quickly here before we wrap up is, um, what about just in general when your esports organization when you're hiring people. And you're bringing people on board. Let's say if you're bringing in, let's say if you're a tournament organizer, you're going to be doing a lot of freelance. You're going to be a lot of, you know, people yeah. are going to be working just at this event and then they go away sort of thing. What what are the legal implications there? And what should the employer be, be doing from a legal aspect? Sure. This is uh, one of the most, I would say, fertile discussions that exist in the esports legal industry. The independent contractor versus the employee, the labor uh, hiring. Uh, as a, in the talking uh, in a perspective of the tournament organizer, it's pretty uh, simple to label someone that you hire for that specific tournament as independent contractor. In contractor, so he works for a short period of time. He might be working with other companies during that time, so that's pretty clear. But when you talk about, especially about organizations hiring players, so that's where the topic gets a little bit hot, because there is a tendency uh, to hire players as independent contractors. We, I'm talking about US, and I'm talking also about Brazil. We have a similar a legal uh, figure here that's an independent contractor also. Why is that tendency? Because it's a cheaper way to hire someone. You don't have to deal with social benefits, uh, health insurance, and other stuff. And I'm not saying here also that uh, players could not be independent contractors. I have seen cases in which they actually are. You hire someone to play for a specific tournament. And even I have seen uh, situations in, in which uh, uh, an organization hired a whole team to represent them in a specific tournament. So they 
for me, that's an independent contractual relationship. I, I can see that. But usually, when you have someone that plays for you in a two, three, four years agreement, uh, that uh, receive orders from your part, cannot do a lot of stuff because it's, it's forbidden in the contract, and he has an independent contractor agreement, it's, some, it's kind of fishy. That's not pretty accurate. And you must have, uh, and if you are get, and if you, if you receive like a lawsuit from a player that had an independent contractor, but also actually you were, he was living with you uh, an employee relationship, you have a huge amount of money to pay, at least in Brazil. There's here, you have to pay like, uh, we take like, a, thinking about a specific salary, you pay like 140% more if you are caught in this kind of situation in which you have an independent contractor agreement, but a judge recognizes it as an employer relationship. So you should take uh, a good look at how is what is actually your relationship with that person. And if you have those, usually those requirements of a, an employer labor relation. So you have like uh, uh, an habituality, you only work for that company and you are always working for that organization. You will have some kind of subordination and you are receiving a specific payment. If you have those requirements, usually there is an unemployment uh, relationship over there. And if you don't have an agreement, if you don't pay what you should pay in that kind of situation, you receive a, a bigger bill later on if you suffer a lawsuit uh, from, from that player. So that's a pretty sensitive, a, a pretty complex issue that should you should take a real good, should take care when designing your agreements or thinking about the risks that you are putting inside your, your business because if you, you decided to use the system A instead of the system B, that would be the more correct one. Yeah, and I think uh, another thing for people to think about in the audience, think about how big do you want to be? It's like, if you're, if you're like, we're always going to be kind of a local, you know, around the neighborhood, around, you know, we're, we're never going to be a national or international. We're never going to be going to Bali for uh, the, the world championship sort of thing. It's like, okay, then, then it, it, it's less important. But if you're looking to scale up and to make, make it a real business, which I know that a lot of people are, are working to do, that's when it's even more important. The other thing I want to talk about is um, investment. If people want to, I mean, everyone, bottom line is it takes money to create a business, to create jobs. And one of the things that everyone is going to be involved with sooner or later, I would guess, is getting investment, whether it's investment from friends and family, whether it's investment from VC, from an, you know, from an organization. So what if, if you're the entrepreneur and you're, you're like, wow, you, you've got investment from some source. What are the kinds of questions should you be asking yourself from a legal standpoint? Oh, good. That's a good question. You, 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 have, you have five minutes. Okay. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm saying that that's that's like a huge. That's like a two-hour topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, first thing, uh, you should understand pretty well what's the the mechanism used for that investment. Because is the is this a plain investment uh, with risk? So the investor is putting money, and if you lose everything. Uh, of course, if you lose everything in a correct way, not to put the money in your pocket and travel to Bali or whatever. Uh, if you do everything okay, that's part of the risk of the deal. But on the other hand, there are those investments that are a, a convertible debt. So it's actually a debt. So you owe that money to an investor and he will decide at a certain moment if He's going to take a share, he's going to take equity, or if he wants his money back at the end of the agreement. And uh, in Brazil, specifically talking, the most, uh, the, the, the legal instrument that mostly used, especially for initial investments, are convertible debts, are convertible debts in instruments. So uh, you should understand what are the obligations that you have. 
And besides that, some investors are really, they just want to put their money and hope that they get, get it back later or have an equity on your organization and get rich with that. But there are other kind of investors that they want to get inside your your business. They they want to participate on the the uh, company decisions. That they want to have some kind of power to to impede some decisions to be taken. Uh, and this uh, this grade of intervention that investor gets is something that you should take care to take a closer look to. Uh, usually, if in initial investments, you will not grant a lot of power to people who are putting money in your business. But if you don't take a look at what's saying in that agreement that you signed, he can even use that, say, ah, here establishes that any expenses higher than $10,000 should be approved by myself. Ah, and I see here that you hired a player paying him $11,000. So... You violated the agreement. That's a material breach. Now I want all my money back with interests and a, a fee that established there for that uh, violation that you caused. So take a look at that on how the money, how the money, how the investment is structured. If it's a debt or if it's an investment actually with risks and what powers are you granting to your investor? Because sometimes you don't want him to to be a part of your of your business and especially to have powers to uh, have a call on the decisions that you're taking on your deal on your business no that sounds you know, no investment is 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 a minefield uh, yeah for, but in us it, it, you have a pretty mature uh, scenario yes. so people understand the risk of investments it's as the as the money say it's a risk investment in brazil it's not so, it's not like that they they want to make uh, an investment they they understand that there is a risk that the deal the business might not happen that the the company might fail but then they want to have guarantees that if the business fails they will get their money back so that that's pretty uh, that's not healthy and i don't agree with that but that happens a lot. On a, on a way to picture, how important, I guess two, two questions. Where do people find an attorney? And how important is it that you talk to an attorney that knows esports? If you're someplace that there aren't a lot of attorneys that know esports. It's nice. like, so, um, so, so where do you, where, where do people find attorneys? Yeah. Uh, that's funny because I was talking this week with my partner here about that and what's uh, actually we're discussing about how how does lawyers use marketing? What's the best marketing tool for a lawyer? And it's and we got the same conclusion. It's referral. It's someone that already know your job that indicated to someone else. So the first uh, uh, the first uh, suggestion I give is. Talk to people who you know or people who you already know that's in the market, in the esports market, and ask who are their lawyers, who are working with them. So the referral is the most important tool for lawyers to sell their, their service and for people to find good lawyers. So that's the first thing. But if you don't have someone to ask or if people don't know, you should take a look in the internet. There are a lot of good esports lawyers that are producing good content. Uh, in U.S., there is the Esports Bar Association. There is an organization of uh, legal professionals that work exclusively with esports. Uh, it's actual, actually it's an international association. I'm, I'm a member of it. But if you go there, you will find. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you find a lot of good professionals that understand about laws, of course, and spe especially about esports and gaming, and about having that gaming experience i think obviously it's an important thing it's it's easier to explain what do you need and to for a lawyer to understand what are your your demands if he knows more or less the dynamics of the esports market if he understands how deals are structured in this in this industry but uh, esports uh, 
actually some people some lawyers and uh, legal professionals try to to create a esports law like a whole autonomous uh, area of law but i don't see like that uh, of course there are things that are specific for esports but esports are mostly a combination of several legal areas we take ip we take entertainment law we take commercial law labor so sometimes if you don't find someone that knows specifically about esports try to find someone that knows a little bit of those areas especially intellectual property and entertainment law because there are a lot of features in those fields that are totally applied to the esports market uh, so answering your question obviously it's a good thing it's a positive it's a, a good uh, an extra point to to have a lawyer that understand the, the the dynamics of the esports market but i i believe that you can find also good lawyers that might help you in a specific case uh, even if they are not totally uh, familiarized with the esports market no i i think uh, this has been a great discussion and i could just keep going on and on because i think it's like, like i told you before i think the, the whole legal aspect is really, really interesting people. And I think people put it off. They don't think about it until they need an attorney, which is the wrong way to do it. And again, this is nothing we've said here is legal advice. But hopefully what we've we've done is we've, we've um, uh, and Andre in particular, what he's done is it made you think about the kinds of things that as an esports entrepreneur, you should be thinking about. And, you know, get, get ahead of the ball because chances are, especially if you want to uh, grow big, if you want to scale up, these are things you're going to need to have thought about. So, Andre, where can people find you online? Okay, people can find me at my firm's website, fma.legal. And they can also find me in LinkedIn. Uh, as, as search for Andre Skinini Moreira. You'll find me there. And you put some links Twitter, in. Yeah. Okay. In Twitter also. Andre underline de underline os. That's my username there. So feel free to reach me out, send me an email, send me a message. I'm always happy to talk about esports and about law. So feel free, uh, your audience, to to reach me out there. Great. No, no. One of the things we found with the audience, they are not shy. So, so they're not shy, and we'll put the links in the show oh, notes. Thanks. So, uh, yeah, because we want, we want people to be, you know, to have good resources, even if they're not in Brazil. Maybe you know someone in another, and you can also uh, educate people about the organizations that are out there that could help them find someone sure. uh, more local if that's the case. So, th thanks for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Thanks, Andre, for showing up. My pleasure. It was a huge pleasure pleasure to be here with you tom and to answer all those qualified questions really glad <laughs> to have someone that knows how to conduct a discussion especially <laughs> with a hot topic like this one yes yes you you got to be careful my, my attorney t tells me how to how to do things here so uh just kidding so thanks for listening to the gamers change lives podcast play games create jobs change lives here in season three we have two new things coming up for each episode, including this one, you can go to the website, um, gamerschangelivespodcast.com. Go to the website and you can download worksheets. We have worksheets for each episode because, again, we're thinking this is a business, uh, building a business. So you can download that and also go check out our new Facebook group where you can talk to other people that are doing the same thing. Because one of the things we found is the best teacher of all in any or in any industry is each other. So go to the Facebook group and check that out. So again, thanks for listening. Gamers Change Live podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.